let me set the context here. The last time we were in the book of Second Peter, uh, Peter wrote about his departure or his exodus from this world. He knew that his death was um, soon approaching, just as Jesus had predicted. And in light of that, he wanted to make sure that his audience remembered and recalled certain truths. And the truth that he speaks to next is that of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And although Peter could have chosen a number of truths to highlight, he chose the second coming. He did this most likely because the false teachers were denying it. In fact, Peter circles back to these exact same themes in the last chapter of this same book. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says this, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so again, the Apostle Peter is going to soon die, and he wants the people of God to remember and live in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Tom Schreiner put it this way. He said, the false teachers doubted the future coming of Jesus Christ. Peter defended the truth of the second coming in a surprising manner. He appealed to his eyewitness testimony of what occurred at the transfiguration. Peter combated that idea, or the idea that the coming of Christ is a fable by appealing to history, to what was seen and heard. The historical events of the transfiguration anticipated a later event in history, the coming of Jesus Christ. Now actually, uh, Peter bases his argument for the second coming on the testimony of two witnesses. Uh, The first is the transfiguration, and the second witness is the prophetic word. The Old Testament scriptures predicted the second coming, and so believers must therefore pay attention to the word of God. So if you would, please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 21 this morning. Second Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're, uh, we're thankful to be here today and to uh, sing to you and to uh, worship you. God, as I 
uh, as I look out over the congregation this morning, I, I can see that there are a lot of people missing. And uh, Lord, we would ask that you would uh, be with them, that you would watch over them. For those that are sick, we pray that they would uh, recover quickly and that they would be able to uh, worship again with us uh, very soon. Father, thank you for um, the gift of your son. Thank you for his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. And God, we we look forward to the day when he uh, returns to gather all of us together, that we will all be in one place worshiping you. Uh, Lord, please give us strength to persevere until that day comes. Continue to uh, forgive us and strengthen us, build us up. God, we pray that we would become uh, more like Jesus Christ. We pray that that would happen even today as we uh, continue on in your word. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, let's, uh, let's consider Peter's first witness. So let's look at verses 16 through 18 again. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. All right, now, as you read these words, you could think that Peter was actually defending the first coming of Christ. Uh, He even references the transfiguration, which, of course, happened during Jesus' earthly life in the past. So let me explain why I believe that Peter is actually arguing for the reality of Christ's future return. If you look at verse 16, you'll find that Peter writes about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this word that's translated as coming is the Greek word parousia. This particular word is used in the New Testament as a technical term to refer to the second coming of Christ. And I could give you a number of verses which you could look up on this point. Um, Hybert explains it this way, coming or parousia is one of the most frequently used terms in the epistles for the return of Christ. When used of Christ, the term elsewhere always refers to his return in glory. And that seems clearly to be the intended meaning here. For New Testament writers, the term enshrined the distinctive Christian hope of the personal coming of Jesus Christ in glory. So the wording that Peter used here is is actually the language of eschatology. It's it's end-time language. He, He uses a word that was understood to refer to the future coming of Jesus, not his first coming. But this still leaves a question, doesn't it? Why would Peter appeal to the past historical accounts of the transfiguration as proof that Jesus will return a second time? Why? What's what's the logic here? Well, what I'd like us to do is to revisit the accounts of the transfiguration in the Gospels to find our answer. If I can have that put on the overhead right now, that'll be helpful. I don't know if you can see it or not. I I hope so. But I'm going to read through the the three different accounts. The first one is in Matthew 16, uh, verses 28 through chapter 17, verse 2. Listen to this. It says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, 
Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. All right, now I'm going to read the second account. This is from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Listen for a a recurring theme here. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And then Luke 9, 27 through 29. It says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these things, or after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. All right, so you'll notice a consistent pattern here in the accounts of the transfiguration. First, there was a prediction of the coming kingdom of God. Second, there was a physical transformation in Jesus' appearance. The consistent pattern points to one thing. The transfiguration is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy about seeing the coming kingdom of God. So when they saw the transfiguration, the apostles were actually witnessing the glory of the age to come. They saw Jesus in all of his end-time glory. And so this was a sneak peek or a, a preview of Jesus in majesty when he comes again in his kingdom. And so Peter was certain of the second coming. Why? Because he had, in a sense, already witnessed it. The transfiguration is a foretaste. It is a proof and promise of Jesus' return. You can go ahead and take that off the overhead for me. Um, Doug Moo asked and answered an important question. He says, Why does Peter allude to the transfiguration to confirm the truth of Jesus' return in glory? As its name suggests, the transfiguration involves a transformation in Jesus' appearance, but it is a transformation which reveals his true nature. It is this glorious and majestic nature, hidden as it were, during his earthly life that will be revealed to all the world at the time of his return. Put simply, the transfiguration reveals Jesus as the glorious king, and Peter was there to see it. He therefore has utter confidence that Jesus will return as the glorious king and establish his kingdom in its final form. All right. Now that we've established that Peter is indeed arguing for the reality of the second coming, let's consider a few more details in these verses. Peter highlights the the historical reality of the transfiguration, and he puts it both uh, negatively and positively, and I'd like us to consider both. Uh, Peter wrote, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So Peter, Peter denies that he's making stuff up here. He refuses to consider the transfiguration as something that's um, make-believe. He explicitly states that the transfiguration was not, it was not mythological. Now, Doug Moo explained the meaning of the Greek word mythos. The Greek word has a broad range of meaning, 
But the meaning most relevant to our verse is the sense fictional account or fable. Jewish authors used use the word with that meaning to depict pagan fictions about the creation of the world and the behavior of their gods. And so Peter is saying that his account of the transfiguration is nothing like the pagan stories of their gods, stories which have no basis in history or in reality. Instead, to put it positively, he says that this event actually occurred. The factuality of the transfiguration, uh, it's highlighted in a number of ways in this section of Scripture. Peter says, uh, first, Peter says that he was an eyewitness. He's, He's saying, I was there. He's not telling us, in other words, Peter isn't saying, I read the gospel accounts, and now I'm going to tell you what I read when I read through Matthew's book. No, he's giving us the account as he remembers it because he saw it with his own eyes. He, he, was, he was giving us his firsthand account. He saw the majesty of Jesus as glory radiated out from him. Uh, Peter also says, number two, Peter says that he was an ear witness. Uh, He heard as God spoke from heaven and honored his son. Peter tells us about his different senses that were involved so that we understand that this was a real event that he actually witnessed. And then three, more than that, uh, Peter remembers the mountain on which this took place. He's locating this event on earth at a specific geographical location. So Peter could actually take a person and say, let's go up on the mountain. I can show you where this happened. It was a physical place where the event actually occurred. Brandon Crow summarized this section well. He said, the glory of Jesus that was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration is an anticipation of the glory that Jesus will display when he returns in power. Put another way, the glory that Jesus displayed in his his transfiguration is a guarantee of his return. Peter writes that we can be certain of Jesus' glorious return because Peter himself saw the glory of Jesus revealed. And this is the glory with which Jesus will return in his second coming. Therefore, we must recognize that the return of Jesus is not a myth. It is not a legend. It is not, this is important because lots of people are saying this nowadays, it is not metaphorical language for a spiritual reality. The return of Jesus will be visible and physical and every eye will see him. Now before we leave this section... I want us to consider why this matters on a very practical level. In the previous section, Peter wrote about the necessity of character development and and spiritual growth. He wrote this in verses 10 and 11. He said, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter wants us to know that this eternal kingdom is a future certainty. He wants us to have it firmly settled in our minds that Jesus will return and establish his universal reign forever. And he wants that future hope to give shape and direction to how we live our lives now in the present time. We must remember that there is a future judgment coming 
where Christ will take into account everything that we have done in the body, whether good or evil. Every word, thought, and deed will come into judgment. Knowing this in advance, we know this in advance. And since that's the case, we must forsake sin and pursue lives of holiness. The truth of, the truth of Christ's second coming should result in us avoiding sin and seeking to conform our lives to God's moral will. All right. We said earlier that Peter bases his argument for the second coming on two witnesses. The first witness is the transfiguration. The second witness is the prophetic word. And I'd like us to consider that second witness now. So let's look at verses 19 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the transfiguration, it um, verifies and it reinforces what the Old Testament scriptures already predicted. The Messiah will come and rule the earth in God's eternal kingdom. Here's an example from the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, the kingdom of God is coming, and of that we are doubly certain. Therefore, we do well to pay attention to the scriptures. They give us guidance through this dark world as we wait for the Messiah to return for us. Peter compares the scriptures to um, a lamp that's shining in a dark place, and this is a familiar metaphor. Psalm 119, verses 105 and, and 130 say this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And notice that Peter says, that we do well to pay attention to the scriptures because they act as a light until, the language here is interesting, he says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. <laughs> okay, so what does that mean? All right, well, the dawning of the day seems to be a reference to uh, the, the arrival of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Uh, that great last day when the wicked are punished and the righteous are vindicated by God. The morning star is uh, its literally a, a reference to the planet Venus, but here the reference is symbolic. And so using scripture to interpret scripture, the reference is to Jesus Christ. Listen to Revelation 22, verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
So if we put all of this together, here's what we get. Here's what Peter's saying. We are waiting for the day of Christ's return to come. Until that day arrives, God has given us a light that we can live by. He has given us his word. And so we must pay attention to it. We must know it, and we must live according to it. Now, there's an important detail in this section that I I don't want to just skip over. Peter speaks of the second coming here objectively and subjectively. Objectively, it's an event that will happen in space and time. It will be a literal, physical, and visible event. Subjectively, the second coming will have a transformative effect upon believers. Here's how John MacArthur explained it. He said, Peter adds the fact that the star arises in believers' hearts. Christ will return in a blaze of physically visible, all-encompassing light that will change the earth. The reference to the hearts indicates that his return will also transform believers into perfect reflections of Christ and make them into the image of his glory. Then Peter gives us some teaching on the origin of Scripture. The prophets were not presenting their own ideas. They weren't making stuff up. They weren't, they weren't sharing their, their own personal opinions about life and the future. On the contrary, men spoke from God. The Spirit of God worked through the prophets, uh, superintending their writings, so that they penned exactly what God wanted to be written. When, what Peter presents here is known as uh, the doctrine of the dual authorship of Scripture. The dual authorship, authorship of Scripture. Men spoke from God. Now, by dual authorship, what we mean is this. It's not merely humans who wrote the Bible. God himself is also the author. He is the, the divine author behind the various human authors. The Spirit did not erase the personalities and and the writing styles of the various human authors. Instead, he directed the authors in such a powerful and supernatural way that the words that they wrote are precisely and exactly what God wanted them to be. Now, one important implication of dual authorship is this. The Bible is completely trustworthy. Since God reveals himself to humanity through this book, he made sure, despite the human authors, that there were no mistakes or errors in the Bible. And so every single word of the Bible is perfect. A second implication of dual authorship is this. The Bible speaks to us. Again, this is important. This is something that is rejected by so many people today. The Bible speaks to us with absolute authority. Since God himself has spoken through the Bible, we must respond to it with faith and obedience. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He said, God has been pleased in his infinite compassion to speak to men. That's amazing. The claim is made for this book that it is absolutely unique, that there is no other book like it in the world. All other books are the production of man. They are the result of man's will, man's understanding, man's insight. But here is a book which claims that it is a record of God speaking. Our life must be lived in terms of this book. It is not human thought and understanding with men trying to predict and prophesy what is going to happen. 
Here we find that the eternal God has been pleased to make known unto men certain things that are of vital importance. God has revealed his own thoughts concerning man and life and the world. Here is a map of history. Here we are told what is going to happen in the days that lie ahead. And that, you will remember, is Peter's immediate point here. He has been telling these people about the return of Christ, about the second coming. How can I know that it is going to happen? I find it stated in the book. And I believe that this book is not the imagination of men, but God the Holy Spirit speaking through man. I either accept this book or else. I base my life and view of the future upon the thoughts and ideas and insights and understanding of man. Let him who is wise hear the word of God. All right, let me close now with one last point of application. Near the beginning of each new year, it's our tradition at this church to take some time to think through some spiritual discipline. And what I'd like to focus on today is um, the, the discipline of Bible reading. I want to encourage you to make Bible reading a, a daily habit of your life. Peter put it this way. He said, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you realize that we live in a dark place? The world is enveloped in spiritual ignorance. In order to see the path that God wants you to walk on, you need the Word of God. You need the light of Holy Scripture. Think about it this way. If you say that you long for the day of the Lord then you must also long for the light of Scripture that prepares you for it. If you want to see the bright morning star in all his glory, then we must also want the light of Scripture which leads us to him. You know, when when we think of Bible reading, we probably think of it in one of two ways. One more spiritual, (laughs) one less. The more spiritual way to think of, think of it is in terms of spending time with God, hearing from him, and drawing near to him. That, that's good. The second way we think of Bible reading, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we're just fulfilling a religious obligation or we're just checking off some spiritual responsibility. Peter gives us another perspective, and I really want us to take it to heart. Peter would have us pay attention to the word of God, because it gives us divine enlightenment through this life, and it keeps us on the path that leads to Christ's eternal kingdom. Obedience to the Bible, it actually prepares us for the second coming and the final judgment. One of the things that I always want to do when I preach on on Bible reading or on any other discipline for that matter, is to somehow motivate you to take the discipline seriously and to make sure to put them into practice in your life. If you are neglecting this critical discipline, let the words of Peter here provoke you to action. Again, listen, listen to what he wrote. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Do not try to make it through this world without the light of Scripture. You will stumble, and you will trip, 
and you will bring much harm to yourself and to others, possibly even eternal harm. You need the light of Scripture. Read your Bible because you have a spiritual responsibility. Read your Bible in order to spend time with God. Read and obey the Bible so that you will be guided through this life and prepared for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maranatha, the Lord is coming. Amen.